and we are live. So great to have Dr. Ben Rolf coming on to our CMO Asia podcast. This is a really special edition and uh, we have uh, actually informed a few uh, of our friends and our community listeners that uh, you'll be coming on to the podcast and they're all really excited to have you here today. Well, thanks. It's a real pleasure to join you. First time. That's great. I think we met uh, less than a month ago when uh, I think we were attending this uh, great uh, event at this uh, Swiss clan. So that was That's like right. uh, some time back, right? So, so many things have already changed so rapidly since then. Happened. Yeah. And uh, maybe tell us a little bit about um, how has uh, the past few weeks been for you, like, you know, since uh, the last time we met at the Swiss clan? Well, look, I mean, I remember when I arrived at that meeting and I went to, someone came to sh shake my hand and I kind of politely refused and kind of put my hand on my heart instead. And I got quite a negative reaction, to be honest. It, was it wasn't like, me, oh, right? A, because a, I remember that I elbow bumped you. So that yeah. wasn't me. <laughs> we elbow bumped. That's right. Yeah. Very responsible. And, um, you know, at the time the, the response was, oh, this is scaremongering and it's all being hyped and overinflated. And I don't think, you know, any of us in the public health community and in any other walk of life could have imagined that just a few weeks later, 80% um, of the world's workforce would have stopped um, 1.5 billion children out of school and the world's economy completely stopped. It's, of course, unprecedented. So uh, on that note, uh, I think it's uh, the right time because uh, more people are joining in uh, and watching this uh, on Facebook Live right now. Uh, let's introduce you uh, for the context uh, and also uh, for those who are uh, not really familiar with you, Benjamin Rolfe, uh, you are the uh, someone I would uh, you know like to describe. Uh, when I met you at a party, I remember you introduced yourself as the uh, public health and intergovernment relations nerd, right? So, uh, but to me, when I checked on your LinkedIn, uh, you are more than that. You are the uh, founding CEO for Communicable Disease uh, Initiative, FRES Initiative in Singapore, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, my background, I've worked in public health for 20 years across about 30 different countries and, um, and I guess got more interested in the intergovernmental relations side when I worked for foreign affairs in Australia. Um, then the Asian Development Bank, which gave me a quite a good understanding of the financing side in Manila. And then we established this initiative in Singapore, which is around trying to drive malaria down to zero. And of course, I got exposed to a lot of the kind of concepts behind communicable disease control through that. Um, and I ran that uh, since 2014 up until the present day, and we'll be handing over to a new CEO shortly. And I'm now working full time on COVID-19, which, of course, is is a challenging, exciting and, and worrying agenda to be engaged in. And we're going to deep dive straight into this elephant in the room because it's the main topic and it's the one thing that is affecting everybody around the world. The world is at its turning point, right? And of course, uh, the main uh, uh, headlines uh, in the past few days is basically US, you know, like uh, putting themselves in a very strange uh, position for many. They have actually pulled funding from World Health Organization. So um, according to you, um, what's your hot take in terms of uh, US dealing itself, you know, out of its own future? Yeah, well, it's really worrying. Um, you know, I've been following the situation in the, U in the US quite closely, and I don't think any of us would have thought that the epidemic would take off so quickly, so aggressively in that country, but also that, you know, the wealthiest country in the world with the highest spending per capita on health in the world uh, could now be the center of this global epidemic and dealing with it in a way that is very mixed. 
Um, and at the beginning of, of, a, of what is clearly a global epidemic that requires a global response, you know, these viruses don't have passports and we've seen they're spreading all over the world. For that country to pull out of the one global coordinating mechanism or at least pull funding is extraordinary, Un unbelievable, in fact. So with uh, this leadership, which is, of course, um, Donald Trump, right, uh, doing um, this kind of uh, moves, do you think that uh, this is uh, unprecedented and also uh, the first time ever that uh, they're dealing with uh, this crisis in a, in a non-leadership way? Well, look, I mean, I think the first thing that perhaps people not working in this field need to understand is that the U.S. have historically been a huge donor and supporter of the global health movement. They are the biggest financier to the Global Fund to Fight HTB and Malaria, the biggest financier to the World Health Organization. All the big global health efforts completely rely on the U.S. because they are the biggest donor by far. You take the, the WHO, they put in 300 million whereas the likes of France, Germany, Switzerland put in around 30 million. So they are streets ahead, which we have to firstly welcome and acknowledge the historic role they've had. These funds would not have happened without them. And the amazing you know, results we've achieved, malaria, we've halved cases and halved them again in parts of um, Asia. For the world, we've really halved the burden over 10 years, and that's largely been due to American leadership and effort. So we have to acknowledge that. Conversely, we, of course, have to acknowledge the huge gap that will be left if they withdraw from that leadership role and also the impact that that will have on the U.S. recovery. You know, the U.S. relies not only on them getting ahead of the epidemic, doing more testing, contact tracing, you know, lockdowns to try and get the, the economy back up and running. But they also rely on the whole world doing that simultaneously because otherwise we're going to be seeding new clusters through international travel and international trade. You know, we have to do this together as a as a as a as humanity if you like and um, for the us to pull out of that effort is incredibly short-sighted so the, with the fate of a uh, united nations agency right uh, which is world health organization that is already running on a budget that is smaller than maybe even a district hospital um and they're going to be determining the life chances of billions of people um, what do you think um, will be the next uh, few months or the future uh, for those around the world and what can we expect? Well, you've got to remember that, you know, the U.S. has a huge amount of domestic capacity. And although it's, the response in the U.S. has been disappointing, particularly with the slow testing, they have all the expertise they need. They have the finances to get on top of this epidemic if there's the political will and if they listen to the experts. The rest of the world, in many cases, are not quite so fortunate. There are many countries that rely very heavily on WHO World Health Organization, technical expertise, and of course also the WHO have this very important role of interfacing with the academics, working out what is the best practice, and then providing guidance to countries in how they can most efficiently tackle the epidemic. Now, it will be a completely hollow victory if the US managed to get on top of their own epidemic, but huge nations like India, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Philippines, you know, with, um, you know, combined half the world's population, if they fail, then the world economy will not restart and America will not be great again because, you know, the U.S. is completely reliant on the global economy. And so we're at a crossroads. You know, the, the global community need to move together and the coordinating body for that needs to be financed to move effectively. And what, what, what I find extraordinary is when you're looking at a, a global economy worth trillions that we are squabbling over a few hundred million 
to fund the agency that's coordinating the fight. If ever there were a time to have this agency being staffed by the most brilliant brains, funded with whatever they need, surely it's this. You know, this is the time where we move together as a global community to tackle this problem. Um, so, yeah, I'm dumbfounded, frankly. You may be able to tell. Well, uh, this is uh, really uh, troubling news. And of course, uh, with the world at its turning point, uh, is it uh, really the time? Or uh, in fact, uh, are we now, you know, at this, at this moment where we need to really invest in the health of the world's poorest people as well? Well, look, I, I think in a sense, we turn our attention to what we can do. You know, the, the president's made this announcement. It's not completely clear whether it's within his uh, purview to be, to, to be able to withhold funding because, of course, those appropriations are managed through Congress. Um, but I think what's really important is that as a global community, we come together and try and present an alternative view that feeds into the narrative of, you know, American taxpayers who, of course, rightly are questioning, um, you know, spending by government, rightly questioning spending that's going overseas and that maybe they don't have a huge amount of visibility of the impact. So, you know, we're right. That the It's right to ask the questions. And I think as a global community, we have to come behind that with a positive approach. You know, why is the World Health Organization important? Why is it in the interests of a U.S. taxpayer who's perhaps already finding it hard to make ends meet? And of course, coronavirus makes this no easier. How can we persuade them, make the case to them that this is actually a really important investment that's in their own national interest? I wrote an article on Medium yesterday uh, talking about you know in whose interest is an investment in who and it's of course in the global interest in terms of the u.s economy but we also have to look at the four billion people on the planet that don't have access to adequate health care and a lot of the global narrative around COVID at the moment is around the impact on the industrialized economies there's very little attention on what this means for india bangladesh sub-saharan africa um, and that's, of course, a huge concern for, for, for the, the humanitarian impact and for the global economy, which is, as I say, so interdependent, you know. So like uh, in Singapore, right, uh, in the context of Singapore recently, we've seen a spike in the numbers of uh, those who are, you know, they are not um, uh, amongst the middle or the high, higher class of the society. They are basically foreign workers who are housed uh, in dorms. And uh, we see a, a huge spike in the number of cases in, in, the, in terms of the hundreds uh, and uh, it's getting worrying. And of course, uh, these are the people who are probably, you know, the least priority, you know, in the beginning, because uh, this is actually quite natural for the Singapore government to really focus on its own people first. And now uh, we've seen a, um, basically a second wave where the numbers are coming from that sector. So what would uh, be the uh, next, you know, um, action that uh, the government should be taking, uh, as well as uh, for the private sector. As we know, you know, the private sector has a huge responsibility as well to assist in, in the response uh, since uh, COVID-19 is really heading towards a critical point at this moment. So can you tell us your hot take on how can private sector as well as the government sectors assist in this response? Well, let me kind of zoom out just for a moment, because I think you, you touch on a really important point around the living conditions of, of people. And I think in the long term, when we look back at this crisis, I hope we will come to the conclusion that where you have countries like India spending less than $50 per day on healthcare, um, Nigeria spending something around the same, countries like Afghanistan spending $8 per person per year on healthcare, we cannot be surprised when epidemics get out of control 
and we struggle to contain them. So firstly, you know, there's a, a, a big picture on this, which is that where you have people living in poor conditions, um, close proximity, overcrowded, lack of access to healthcare, you will get epidemics that will undermine all of our life chances, all of our standards of living economies. So you know, the first thing is that in the long term, we need to get really serious about health financing. If you don't put the money in, you cannot expect to be safe and well globally. To your point more specifically, um, I think the private sector can have a really important and major role. You know, at the moment, we're at the beginning of a long wave epidemic. You know, when when Donald Trump says that he can end the lockdown uh, by May and that will be the end of it, it's just not supported by the evidence. It's very hard to look at the modeling coming out of Harvard, Imperial College, London um, and elsewhere it's very hard to come to the conclusion that a single wave of, of control can do this. You know, this is going to be likely two years of on and off measures, and we will get better and smarter at, at implementing those measures, which is a good thing. So we'll find ways to reduce the transmission in the population with less and less harm. But it's going to be a long road. It's going to be a tough two years. You know, these measures are going to be around. And um, it'll have a huge impact on the private sector, on the economy. Now, governments at the moment are using every tool in the arsenal. You know, they're locking down, they're closing schools, they're doing everything they can. Aviation stopped the whole, the whole nine yards. Now, clearly that can't continue, but we will only know what measures we can implement if we have really sound evidence around the relative contribution of these different measures. So everyone needs to be pulling together. You know, the airline industry needs to be saying, well, how can we run airlines but make it as safe as possible, reduce transmission in the cabin, in the airports, try and do our, do our bit to make our part of this puzzle safer. That goes for the tourism, it goes for public transport domestically, you know, it goes for every sector. And so all sectors need to be looking at their own operations. How can I reduce transmission? Home working, if that's going to be two years, how can we make that a great experience for our employees? How can we make sure we are as profitable and as functional as we can given this constraint? There's a ton that they can be doing. At the moment, my fear is that people are kind of rabbit in the headlights and not really sure where to turn. And my advice is think about a two-year time frame. Start thinking what do we need to know and what do we need to plan now to make that two years as easy as possible, as profitable as possible, and to be as socially responsible as profitable over that time. I think your two-year, um, this uh, time frame is uh, definitely uh, not unreasonable because uh, from how things are panning out as well uh, around the world, and uh, many countries are still reacting ra rather than, you know, uh, responding to this uh, really, really, you know, perfectly. Even Singapore, you know, is finding it uh, very tough uh, to cope, uh, you know, with a resurgence of second wave. So two years is definitely a reasonable amount of time. And for someone like uh, yourself and also for me, uh, we are always, uh, you know, jet setting and uh, flying around the world for conferences. And basically, uh, you know, our work requires a lot of um, traveling. And of course, uh, the key questions uh, for, for everyone who is a traveler, of course, a business traveler, and also for yourself, because I think you are an aviation enthusiast, right? Um, it leads to the next question. When can we actually fly again? Well, good question. I think the honest answer is nobody knows. Um, you know, we, we need to get much better at understanding the contribution of different suppression measures to the epidemic. We don't really know um, 
at this point how we can optimize those to try and you know get life back to normal i certainly think that where countries are on top of their epidemic uh, and singapore is doing a reasonable job of course they have this quite focal problem with overseas foreign workers but generally in the broader population they have transmission under control there's really no reason why there couldn't be flights now between Singapore and maybe Australia, which seems to be getting on top of their epidemic. You know, I think we will see transport opening up. I saw that um, Australia and New Zealand are now discussing resuming flights. You know, this is not irresponsible so long as we have a game plan. You know, originally the game plan was to try and step on the epidemic to the point that we found every case and we stamped on every case. And Singapore are still trying to do that. But if you look at countries like the US, you know, they would need something like 100,000 contact tracers to make that realistic. That's not to say they shouldn't do it, but the chances of a country like the US being able to reduce this down to single-figure cases, I am somewhat skeptical. I'm somewhat skeptical. And so we have to find ways to get life somewhat back to normal within those constraints. And that has to include aviation. We, we can't function without it, but we need to find ways to do it safely. That's a great uh, answer, and uh, of course, uh, for uh, many of us who attended this uh, event at the Swiss Clan, where you spoke about, uh, you know, global business uh, being, uh, you know, the expectation is that uh, global business will flow back to Asia, and of course, uh, this is based on, is predicated on the uh, amount of tests being done on the people who are suspected uh, to have coronavirus, and of course, uh, in terms of how China has successfully done contract contact tracing, right, and also tested uh, rigorously. So do you still uh, stand by that uh, viewpoint that uh, businesses will definitely be flowing back to this part of the world? I think so. I mean, I think certainly, you know, my, myself and some others a few years ago discussed the need for credit ratings agencies to start taking into account health security capacity when they rate countries for credit rating. And, you know, boy, was that um, prescient in a sense, you know, no one is now going to fail to take that into account when they rate a country. Can this country survive a crisis like this? Ironically, the US scored quite well in some of those assessments, um, but it hasn't borne through into practice. And countries like the Singapore uh, and China have really shown that they are able to mobilize and keep on top of this epidemic really quickly. I think that um, businesses will recognize that and realize that they are safe places to trade near huge markets. And I think, you know, the again, coming back to the WHO decision, the decision of the US to retreat from multilateralism, when they have done so well historically out of multilateralism, you know, they were behind the League of Nations, the United Nations, the Bretton Woods institutions, you know, the, the uh, World Bank and the IMF, you know, they sit on the boards of these organizations, they direct them in their own interests. For the US to retreat from what was their unique advantage is extraordinary. And of course, the likes of China will step into that position. China already now exporting masks and ventilators and experts all over the world. And it's very much appreciated. The US are not doing that. The US, in fact, asked their own aid program to try and find ventilators and protective equipment from developing countries and ship it back to the US. It's the opposite opposite of leadership. And I think the likes of China will draw a dividend from that. And, you know, I have to say quite rightly in the circumstances. 
So this is definitely um, something that, that uh, businesses will be, uh, you know, paying very attention to uh, because of uh, the developments uh, which are basically changing so rapidly. Uh, every day a decision could actually set uh, a country or even the uh, prospect of, uh, you know, early recovery on the uh, either the wrong path or the right path or the wrong direction. But they all go back to the uh, same road again. And of course, uh, uh, everyone expects uh, to... Uh, uh, you know, if the right response uh, will be able to get out of this pandemic, uh, you know, um, based on the amount of efforts that they put in and also the strategy and the right decision that they make. So I think uh, we can put to bed uh, the elephant in the room right now and uh, maybe dive uh, deeper into uh, your personal life. Of course, uh, you're very uh, interesting uh, to our company listeners. Uh, and most of us are also very, uh, you know, uh, intrigued by uh, the career path that you had. And of course, uh, you uh, have a really remarkable career journey, right? Uh, maybe tell us uh, in terms of uh, how this year has been like for, for you personally and also career or business-wise since uh, 2020 started. Yeah, it's it's been crazy. You know, I don't think any of us could have foreseen where we would be. Um, and I had, you know, following quite a long time working for large institutions and then running um, this NGO in Singapore for, for three and a half years, I was ready to do something else and planning to set up a, an advisory um, practice looking at health financing and intergovernment relations on public health. Um, I would have, of course, never anticipated that intergovernment relations, in, in, intergovernmental relations and communicable disease would suddenly become such a critical issue. So it's a fascinating time to be working, you know, with that experience between foreign affairs, financing and health. So, you know, it's extremely motivating and extremely stimulating. Um, but of course, as a human, it's also, you know, very worrying. And, um, you know, I think everybody has been on a mo an emotional journey with this of coming to terms with the gravity, coming to terms with the humanitarian impact, starting to see people on Twitter losing their loved ones and you know, a kind of outpouring of, of sympathy and grief. It's a very human experience. So, you know, for me, there's an intersection of the, of the very personal and the professional. Um, it is quite all-consuming, but I think that's the case for, for most people at the moment. So how has the pandemic uh, really affected you? Um, in terms of like, how, what, how have you been, or what have you been doing to cope uh, with the pandemic pre-lockdown? And uh, during the lockdown as well, what went through your mind when you first heard that, you know, you have to be put, you know, your, your country has to be put on lockdown? Well, it's, it's of course, it's, it's an extraordinary thing to come to terms with. And, you know, I lost some sleep over it. And, uh, you know, I'm quite a keen aviator. I like to fly small planes when I can. And, of course, all of that has stopped. Um, I'm a keen meditator and I've found much more time for meditation, which is Fantastic. a good thing. Um, doesn't do much for the waistline though, and I definitely been overeating. For everybody, right? <laughs> yeah. um, I was reading something yesterday saying if you thought toilet rolls were in short supply, wait till the hairdressers reopen. Oh um, yes. <laughs> so no one's looking at their best at the moment. Um, so yeah, it's you know I think people are finding new new ways of being, and I think one you know quite beautiful thing through all of this has been reconnecting with people, and you know people have had to make a conscious effort to build some sort of social life and support network. I talk to my parents more than I ever did. I talk um, to my family more. I re I've reached out to old friends who I've lost touch with. Um, so, you know, it's been a kind of bittersweet experience for me. And I think that's also replicated for, for many people. I don't know if yourself, have you found something similar? 
Yes, I think I feel uh, that uh, my empathy levels have actually risen uh, to to its maximum ever, you know, in my life. So it's like uh, I see, uh, you know, many people either, you know, worried about losing their jobs or some are already retrenched or businesses have to close down, right? So these are the news that you're getting basically on a daily basis and you're hearing all these bad news, but there are also many people uh, in different industries who are, you know, um, getting together. They form like uh, support groups together. They are, of course, starting more Facebook uh, community groups as well, which is a great thing. And uh, they don't just like, uh, you know, form groups and just, uh, you know, complain or be negative about the situation, but they are thinking of new ways to help one another. So I think yesterday I, I started a, a podcast with a, a person that I really admire. Uh, he's a basically the godfather of fashion industry in Singapore, and his name is Daniel uh, uh, Bowie. Uh, in fact, uh, he's Give a shout out to him. Uh, we did a, a podcast series uh, together. Um, it's co-produced by CMO Asia Podcast as well. And what happens is that every day he brings on a lot of uh, people with huge empathy. You know, they are basically leaders in their field as well, from fashion, from events, from all kinds of verticals. And they are all talking about what they can do to help. And of course, uh, what really inspires me and uh, basically also makes me feel like I'm not doing enough. I want to do more is that uh, when I hear stories like that, like for example, uh, the president of the uh, you know, models uh, and fashion community in Malaysia, they actually you know, put out videos of uh, teaching people how to use clothing material to uh, create face masks, for example, or make uh, you know, uh, medical uh, suits uh, for the doctors and nurses due to the shortage over there. So, so these are the things that people are getting really creative and uh, really inspiring back to people like me, who is basically you know, just helping the way I can, which is to produce podcast episodes like this. And yeah. basically uh, trying to help uh, communities like this over communicate. And of course, uh, they have messages to send out. And the message that they are sending out is uh, not to, of course, dwell. Uh, basically, if we, there are anything that we can do to help others, uh, this is the best time to do it. And of course, uh, people are sitting uh, you know, at home and probably trying their best to exercise. And of course, uh, failing miserably, me included. <laughs> You know, it's like adding on uh, five uh, kg over the weeks, and uh, but these are actually not important, and it's basically the most least important things right now. And the more important things definitely is about how to really you know tackle this situation, and of course, uh, feeling for others as well. So, in fact, this leads to the next question: like, uh, how are the other members of your staff or your peers or your colleagues? How are they coping? Well, I think, you know, I, I appreciate what you say. And I think um, there is this sense of solidarity. And I've really noticed amongst, you know, the team in Singapore um, for the Asia Pacific Leaders Malaria Alliance have been meeting every day. They've been having social hangouts online. Um, there is a, a clear sense of solidarity. And I've seen that across all sectors. You know, it's extraordinary, actually, if you follow the research on Twitter, the extent to which researchers are collaborating like never before publishing and peer reviewing each other's work live in a public fora. You know, it's a big thing to put a paper up before peer review and accept a, you know, a barrage of, you know, hopefully constructive criticism. But the field is moving forward at lightning speed and it's doing it because of the goodwill uh, and, and people letting their egos down and being willing to be criticized. Um, and it's an extraordinary thing. And I really hope that, that sense of solidarity that we may experience in our family lives and maybe in our workplaces can also extend to the to the broader community and coming back to your question around what can the private sector do you know we're seeing these very large bailouts now going to aviation and other industries you know the private sector can engage in that debate and start thinking about well what does this mean for zero hours contracts what does this mean 
for staff that have been furloughed? Are they getting a reasonable deal? Are they being looked after? You know, can we promote the good examples where companies are supporting their staff through hardship and also supporting their suppliers? So the people making denim jeans in Bangladesh, are they getting support through, um, you know, through these stimulus packages, etc.? So, you know, we can start engaging in that debate as well. Uh, you know, writing letters to the editor, engaging with our, uh, our, our economist friends, engaging in social media. So there's a lot that we can do to try and spread the love in a sense, spread that sense of solidarity uh, into uh, spheres that also support the world's most vulnerable uh, and the people that are going to come out most at risk and potentially damaged by this crisis. Talking about the word uh, furlough, it's a new word that I actually learned a couple of weeks back with uh, yeah. the, the football team that I support from the Premier League, uh, Liverpool. They basically made news around the world when they put some of their staff on, I think majority of their staff are furlough. So it's, it basically is a decision that they had to reverse, uh, you know, and make a U-turn later on uh, because uh, of so much, uh, you know, uh, feedback from, from the society, from the communities. And of course, they are all watching what's... Uh, uh, what are the development, you know, even for football, right, which is basically a sport that uh, people can escape from uh, the reality of life. And uh, when they see news like this and uh, people are, of course, uh, up in their arms and uh, trying to, you know, uh, put a spotlight on Liverpool, you know, one of the richest clubs in the world, why can't they do more in terms of uh, instead of relying on taxpayer to, uh, uh, you know, fund the uh, salaries of uh, their workers during these uh, pandemic times? Uh, couldn't they do more, you know? So the, the private sector really has a huge responsibility and uh, like what you mentioned just now uh, the solar solidarity as well is really uh, very uh, heartwarming to see and of course uh, we see so many initiatives coming out every day it's just a matter of uh, you know uh, the right uh, conditions and the right time for everyone to not just put themselves together but to take action right and of course not everyone has the means as well to take action but we can all celebrate the leadership you know when we see the New Zealand Prime Minister cutting her own pay when we see AirAsia making a commitment to continue to pay its workforce and cut senior management salaries, you know, I think one thing we can all do is celebrate uh, the, the beacons of leadership. And we're all on social media and we can all do that. And that's a positive step to try and build solidarity and a, and a positive humane response in a crisis. So looking ahead, um, what are your thoughts? Well, look, I, I, it's going to be a long road and there's things that we need to do now to try and get the economy back on its feet, to try and look after the, the, the people that have been affected most severely. There are countries that can really not afford a lockdown. And if you think Singapore and the US cannot afford it, you can bet that India, Bangladesh, uh, the Philippines, Indonesia cannot afford it. The Pacific Island countries reliant on tourism cannot afford it. So there's going to be a huge amount of hardship and poverty. I think we can all engage in that agenda, make sure that we are across the impact we are engaging on social media, keeping it visible because it's too easy to be focused on our own backyard and we're all in this together. I really hope that over the next two years, uh, a narrative evolves around never letting this happen again. And that means that everyone has access to healthcare. It is not okay for the US to fund, to spend more on healthcare than any other country and not have universal health coverage. There are uh, paramedics and ambulance staff in the states that don't have health insurance themselves, but they're picking up COVID patients off the streets. That is not okay. And I hope that we can get behind an agenda that is just more compassionate and equitable that says this must never happen again. But the way in which we prevent that happening is proper investment in public health. That's what 
that's the lesson that we've learned the, the really hard way. Uh, so that would be my kind of my hope coming out of the two years of difficult times. I think you really nearly the head and uh, in terms of the lessons learned from this uh, pandemic and of course uh, during dark times uh, there are always uh, people or even organizations that uh, touch people's hearts you know throughout this dark period. So for you personally, uh, anyone has touched your heart during these dark periods? Many, many. You know, I, I think the leadership that we've seen from some administrations has given us hope. If you look at Trudeau, um, if you look at the leadership in New Zealand uh, at a government level, there's been a lot of compassion and a lot of straight talking uh, and maybe not so many egos and not so much hyperbole. So that's something that's really appreciated. Again, the academics, I think, have been extraordinary, you know, really hardworking, open to criticism. And I would call out Imperial College in London. I'd call out Harvard Chan School. Um, many others have been extraordinary. The School of Public Health in Singapore as well. Um, Hong Kong School of Medicine has also been outstanding. So, you know, really strong leadership there. Many of the NGOs also uh, have been really outstanding. I have to say, I think many of the aid agencies have been very slow to move. And I'm really, if you ask where does leadership need to come from next, I think the aid sector really needs to step up. The UK, um, Australia really need to engage. And it would be great to see Singapore start establishing an aid program. You know, they've already been following, uh, leading the region and starting to support their neighbours. I'd like to see much more leadership from Singapore. They have the capacity and the experience. They would benefit themselves. It would be fantastic if a legacy from this was a really solid aid program coming out of Singapore. So we have uh, hit the uh, 30th minute mark and I really appreciate you know, your time uh, to uh, get uh, involved in this uh, podcast on Facebook Live. So uh, maybe uh, do you have a parting message uh, for anyone who's tuning in and of course uh, any other people you want to put a spotlight on? Well, parting message, just wash your hands, stay safe, uh, stay indoors. And then going forward, just make sure that we, you know, if we try and live our lives in a way that is not conducive to transmission, you know, we can open up the society to the extent to which people behave. And if people can be very mindful of their own behavior, the chances of us being able to return to normal more quickly are much greater. So, you know, be considerate, be compassionate. Uh, stay at home, wash your hands. Um, I think that's the message and repeat. That's brilliant. And I really love that. So uh, thank you once again. And uh, I look forward uh, once we are over the other side of the coronavirus uh, to pay you a visit, you know, finally at your office and do uh, in-person sit-down uh, discussion or conversation uh, on the CMO Asia podcast. So that day Excellent. when it, uh, this finally takes place uh, will be an awesome day. So I'm really yeah, looking forward be, to that. It'll be great to come out the other side. Wayne, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Ben. See you soon. Take care. Take Bye. care.